Hi, this is Steve Cropper. This is the Blues Podcast. Hi, it's Big Boy Bloater here, and this is the Blues Podcast. On today's show, I have an absolute legend with me. When I say legend, I really mean legend, like the most legend of all the legend, the king of the legends, uh, described by Mojo Magazine as the greatest living guitarist. Uh, he's a, a songwriter, a producer, the greatest living guitarist, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and he's brought the world such fantastic songs as Dock of the Bay, uh, Midnight Hour, Knock on Wood, Green Onions, many of my personal favourites. I am very, very excited. Glad you like them. Very excited to say hello. I didn't do any of that. That was my brother that did that. I didn't do any of that stuff. Somebody else did. <laughs> hello, Steve Cropper. How you doing, man? How you doing? I'm doing good, Bob. How you doing? So much to talk about. I know we we just joked a minute ago saying we're going to need two years for this for this interview to get through everything. And and you know I I, I realise we might be going over old ground for you as well. And, and and I'll try not to do too much of the stuff that you've talked about a million times already. Right. But we're going to touch on that for sure at some point. I know. But uh, I always like to start these things off by going right back to the very 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 start um before you even got a guitar and you're a, you're a young guy and you live in uh in missouri right and then you move to memphis yeah but i wasn't playing music then. yeah i didn't start playing music until i moved to memphis i was about 10 years old i think when we moved to yeah so i mean moving to memphis what, what, what year roughly was that it must have been the 50s was it well my dad took a job on the frisco railroad as a special agent he was a policeman in West Plains, Missouri, which is 19 miles away from the farm. And he was uh, at that job for less than a year. I don't know exactly how many months, probably 11 or 12. But the uh, chief of police of West Plains, Missouri said, Hollis, my dad named Hollis, why don't you go down and fill out a job report? Well, they hired my dad right on the spot because when he told them what he did and all that, he was out of the military and had all that background and stuff. So he didn't have to fill out a job report. They hired him right on the spot. But then you moved to Memphis. That must have been quite a change. Yeah, but <laughs> tell me. <laughs> it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> That's like going out of a closet and headed to Disney yeah. World. <laughs> I mean, the, the music there is exploding at the time. It was just a, an absolute hotbed of great stuff. I mean, as, 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 yeah, but I got there at the right time, yeah. I guess. But I didn't start playing until I was about 15 or 16 years old. I started writing when I was 14. Right. I got my first guitar, I think, when I was 50, late 15 or what inspired you to, to like get hold of a guitar and go, you know, yeah, this is something else. I don't know about uh, the inspiration of what got me going on a guitar. The only thing that I remember is that everybody in school, all the guys, wanted to learn how to play guitar. So that was somebody else's inspiration. And basically, I was just catching up with the other guys. Yeah. <laughs> but I was a quick learner, and I knew they didn't know anything about business. And I don't know how I got that knack, but I did. And... Uh, Started applying business to music, and we made it. Music business, yeah, sure. Do you remember what your first guitar was? I do. My first guitar was a Silvertone, flat top Gibson, yeah, Sunburst. Yeah. Nice. Do you still have it? No, I wish. The Silvertone, I wish I still had it, but <laughs> I mentioned Gibson, bless their hearts. I had several Gibsons, but my first guitar was a Silvertone from Sears and Roebuck Catalog yeah. when Roebuck was still a partner. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! I wonder where that guitar is now, and you know whether 
Who knows where that guitar is? They must have seen some sights. I don't need it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. The first guitar that I ever played or had in my hand when I was about eight years old belonged to my uncle, even though he didn't play guitar, but he had one. So I went to my aunt a couple of times and said, can I get Uncle Dale's guitar out of the closet? And I just pluck on it like a rubber band on, you know, something, just to hear it vibrate. Yeah. That's the only reason I had it. I didn't want to get out to play or nothing. And I just opened the case, the top open, and I'd play it that way. So leave it in the case. I had no reason to take it out. So that guitar is on display downtown here in Nashville at the Musici Musicians Hall of Fame Museum. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I bet a lot of guitarists can't say they know where the first guitar that they touched kind of is. It's a, it's no. a very rare thing. It's Fortunately, I can. Yeah. But the first one i ever owned i don't have the green Angels guitar i do not have there's a big story behind that yeah. but i don't have it i left it on somebody's wall and they fainted when i told them it was mine so <laughs> i had a friend go over and tell them that's steve's guitar and the lady fainted i said leave it on the wall so when i found out what it might be worth today i said i can make them richer than they their dreams yeah. so yeah, they had uh, both the dad and the mom had passed away about three months before I investigated where the guitar was. So I have no idea where it is. I'm sure it's probably preserved somewhere. Maybe yeah. they left it on a wall. It probably had a lot of dust on it, but is, it still is, was is a guitar. Is this work. the guitar that you painted and it kind of went a, a weird color? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too stupid to use primer. Okay. Well, you know, so it didn't turn. Stupid, I, no yeah, primer. I, I bought a can. I bought a can of candy apple red spray paint and sprayed this raw wood and it turned out purple because i hey. guess purple was in the in the pigment of the color yeah but it didn't turn out red it turned out purple and somebody said leave it that way i was going to strip all that off and paint it again and they said no let's leave it where it is <laughs> man that's pretty cool so it was a purple guitar i do have pictures of it candy apple red is, is a fairly common color for guitars even, it was even popular in the, yeah. in the 50s yeah big time bicycles and cars and they called it candy apple red. That was the color. Do you, do you think by having a purple guitar, people thought, hey, that's that dude with the purple guitar. It made it kind of stick out a little bit, you know? A little unusual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the difference in it was that it was uh, it was very versatile, but it was an Esquire. That meant one pickup. Yeah. And I wanted the Telecaster to pick up, so I went to a Telecaster. What I didn't know until I worked on it some, that if you take the pickguard off, the milling is still there for the other pickup underneath the the solid pit guard ah so right. for those who may not believe me find an esquire take the pit guard off and tell me that it's not already been milled the body has yeah for the two pickups yeah <laughs> if i had one i'd check but unfortunately i haven't got one i'm very sad to say but uh well what happened with me was that uh, i love that other pickup but it was a neck pickup yeah. and if you put the switch all the way in just the neck pick neck pickup it was too muffled didn't sound right. If you went back all the way back and used the bright pickup, it was too bright, the bridge pickup. So I always, all my telecasters, all those sessions you heard me on, I had to switch in the middle position using both pickups. It blended pretty well. That's why I used it. Yeah, it sounded pretty good. I mean, back in those days, right, you were just plugging straight into the amp. There was no effects pedals or well i still do that i don't use any pedals i tried that one time in california and i threw them away after about 10 days i said this is ridiculous <laughs> and i watch guys today do that and they've got it down yeah they, they know it they have you know 30 or 40 different things they can switch to 
Yeah. And I'm one of those guys, you know, let's use this pickup, that amp, plug straight in. If it doesn't sound right, get another amp. Yeah. Or get another guitar. <laughs> so I've been asked in the past, how do you pick a guitar? Pretty easy. I put, pick it off the wall, up, don't plug it in, use it, unplug, and play it acoustically. If it sounds good, it's probably pretty good. Just You find an amp that'll go with it. Yeah. yeah. And just use that and play it. What, what amps were you using back in those days? Do you remember? Yeah. A Fender Harvard. That amp. I had. I kept the right. amp that Green Angels played with. So when I gave uh, stuff away, I gave three guitars and two amps to the Smithsonian. And I told them, I said, I cannot give you the guitar that I played on Green Angels. The next best thing is the amp I played through. I'm going to give you that. <laughs> and I did. And it's on display in uh, in Washington, D.C. at Smithsonian. Wow. That's cool. That's really cool. Old Fender Harvard Tweed. <laughs> Tone control and volume control. That's it. Two inputs. Yeah. What else do you need, right? Yeah. I've often yeah. I've often wondered about lots of you know guitars. And you see, there's like loads of knobs on there and all that. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I play guitar, I'm just pretty much full on up. I, I'm starting to think it doesn't need any knobs on the guitar. You know, really, it's just like you know you can use the volume on the amp and that's it. It's, uh, yeah, there was an old uh, Ampeg guitar I think that had a switch on it. That said Wild Dog. I said that guitar has already surpassed me. Wild Dog. <laughs> I don't think so. You put it on the switch. It said Wild Dog. Okay. Wow, and what happened then? You supposed to bark with it, or what yeah. do you play it? I don't know, Wild Dog. It bites you. Is that a growl or a bark? <laughs> you, you must have seen quite a lot of changes in the uh, in the guitar technology over the years, and uh, I, I, yeah, a little bit. I should imagine studio changes have been even even bigger. I mean, you know, you, you've been a producer. Yeah, the consoles and all, and techniques have changed considerably. Yeah, since I started. Yeah. But guitars, the thing that the guitar I play now, I had the guys make me one like the old guitars. Right, yeah. Same rap, same everything, same type pickups. Get that old sound. And that's yeah. what I like, and that's what I'm playing. I've been playing that guitar for over 10 years now, and I was going to retire it about four or five years ago and decided it still sounds pretty good. You better keep it. It's, if it's, so the it's longer I keep it, I think it'll still raise plenty of money for the kids' hospitals and stuff if, when I get ready to sell it. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. When you started uh, producing, the gear back there must have been pretty basic, right? Were you, were you four track? Were you uh, up to four tracks then? Or? Well, when we started, it was at mono only. Oh, okay. Then we went uh, along with two track. Yeah. So I've always said uh, by the time we did a song like Dock of the Bay and Soul Man, we had four track. Yeah. So Dock of the Bay was mixed by six track. Right. <laughs> a four track is four, and, and a stereo <laughs> makes six track. Yeah. So what I did, I made a loop and put the gulls and sea wa and the waves, the ocean waves, on a two-track. Yeah. And I had to trial and error in the mix <laughs> to start the tape at the right time. So the splice didn't go by when I had the sound up. You would hear the splice. Oh, wow. There's a real real kind of balancing act. You were just kind of looking everything. Yeah, yeah you just trial up. and error and do it a yeah. few times until you get it right and it works. So you start at the same place every time. I mean, you put know. Put a mark on it and go with it. Very quickly talking about Dock of the Bay there. I mean, it is one of those songs that uh, you know, any, anybody who's into music, as I should imagine, has heard it and, and loves it. It's a, a phenomenal song, great song. It's one of those songs that comes on the radio and you just sort of sit there and think for a while, yeah, oh, this is great, this is lovely. Uh, but, you know, say so you recorded that on, on, on four tracks, well, with the two extra tracks, you know, right. for, the, for the special effects. Well, like, we say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, recording songs like that, I mean, it's, you know, you listen, like I say, you listen to it today and it still stands up. It sounds brilliant. You know, I don't think anyone would 
have any qualms about the quality or anything like that. we're all kind of striving for that sound now as well why don't we just record on four tracks we're, we've got you know pro tools now we've got 128 tracks yeah. we've got microphones coming out of our ear holes we've got everything why are we make it so so complicated when we kind of hit the hit the formula well already. i had an engineer at one time his name was gordon rudd and he looked at me we were overdubbing on an a track and he said steve you know one of these days you'll be able to overdub as many times as you want yeah. and keep it yeah and then i i remember saying i said well yeah but you got to remember all of that <laughs> that's the what thing, about yeah. today you can overdub a hundred times, but if you don't know what's what, then you got to remember all of them. Yeah, yeah. And so the guy that's mixing something for the first time, if he's a good mixing engineer, you you hire him to mix your record. There's usually no notes on there to tell you which is the best take or which is the best cut. Yeah. He's just supposed to know that. So it's usually his decision. Yeah. <laughs> and you ask a brilliant question. I think I'd already answered that earlier. It's quicker to do it with the new technology. Okay. Yeah, but do it as simple as possible. So even though you have the facility of a hundred tracks, you only use four or five of them. You don't need all all hundred. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you want to, fine. And I remember Tommy Dowd called me one time. He said, "I just mixed the most incredible record and the hardest thing I've ever done." I said, "Really, Tommy? What?" He was doing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Uh, yeah. So they would take in the old days if you had two bars or something you put it on a track and the rest of it was just empty well those guys decided it's empty there i want this to go in there so they had hundreds of ideas on a lot of those songs and so the engineers had to know which what they wanted and so usually the uh the musicians in those days the artist or the musician was there to mix along and tell them what they, what they wanted to hear and if they left something out they'd say oh right there's supposed to be a trumpet lick <laughs> so it's it's a creative process it's tough i mean you say you say that it's quicker these days but i think you know when you've got 30 vocal takes and you have to go through them all just find out which one's which and then you by the time you got to the 30th one you've forgotten how the first one sounds so you go back to the first one again go through them all again it's like why that band could have recorded the whole song in that uh, time <laughs> that works it doesn't work yeah. all the time <laughs> I had a singer, and I'm going to name his name. He's very famous. If I, if I said his name, you'd know him immediately. And I said, I think we got it. And he looked at me, and he said, no, I think I'd beat that. I said, I don't think you can, but I'll let you try. Three and a half hours later, he looked at me and said, you know, Steve, you were right. That second take is the best take I'll ever do of that song. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess if you got the time, there's no, no, no harm in trying, is there? But yeah. If you got the time and the money, because three and a yeah. half hours is three and a half hours of studio time. Let's go, let's go back to the early days again, because I want to know uh, how, you know, so you just kind of picked up a guitar as, as a kid, you know, 14, 15 year old. And, you know, you know, how did you get to learn it? Did you teach yourself or was there like some sort of lessons you did? Or? Well, like I said, the guys in school wanted to learn. So I got a lot from guys in school. Yeah. And a lot I got from listening to other people. Yeah. And the main guy that I listened to all the time was a guy named Loman Pauling. Who a lot of people don't know who that is. He was the leader and the writer with the Five Royals. Yeah, I love that song. Think that's one of my favorite He's great. songs. Oh, think, yeah, oh. what a great song that is. Say it and think. Some of those licks are just yeah. incredible. That's played. one thing that really drew me to it in the first place was the guitar, the guitar licks and those breaks. Just ah, oh, phenomenal. Absolutely love that track. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure there are other guitar players out there that are as good or better than he was. But I got to see him live. I didn't get to see some of these other guys live. So. 
yeah, pick up a guitar, learn it at school and all that. Get a band together at school. Seems, see, it seems, it seems, you know, when you say it like that, it seems easy, doesn't it? But uh, is that just the way it went? Just, well, yeah. it seems easy at the time, but the way I look at it is very simple. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of guys that had high school bands that never made it. Yeah. Because why? They didn't. They didn't have somebody in the band that knew how to get the stuff played to the air. And uh, I remember Al Jackson one time looking at me. We were listening to Playblacks in the studio, and somebody said, "Man, that sounds like a hit." And so Al Jackson said, Steve, they're all hits until they're released. Yeah. I went, he's right about that. Let the fans pick the song. <laughs> Let them pick what they like. And that's the way songs used to be yeah. judged. Disc jockers would play a record. If his fans or listeners asked him to play it again and again and again, that was the most popular song at the time. Yeah. They don't do that anymore. Uh, that's why there's so many songs that are here today, gone today, I say. Yep. Because they hear it once or twice, they're ready to move on, go to something better or something else. It's, it's a disposable world these days, that. isn't it? It's, music is, is disposable yeah. as well. I think that's <laughs> a big shame. But you sort of mentioned something there. I was going to ask you a question about later, but um, bring it up now. Uh, I was going to ask you about all the thousands of songs you've heard over your over your career and produced and worked on and, and uh is there is there a particular song that you thought was going to be a great big hit, but it just never happened? <laughs> I've been asked that before and contemplated on it. I didn't, still didn't come up with anything that I would think of. I mean, there's a lot of stack songs I thought were real good that were playable that never made it because they didn't get played on the radio. Let's talk a little bit more, bit more about uh, producing for a minute, if we can, because uh, I want to know um, after the stacks era kind of thing and into the 70s i guess you were working with people like um rod stewart and ringo Starr. um i, I believe dolly parton's in there somewhere and, and and all kinds of people paul simon was it an easy thing for you to jump from like rhythm and blues into that more mainstream pop thing was it something you had to think about or was it just something you just went yeah well, i'm down with this <laughs> So after the Stax days, everybody wanted that sound that could get it. So what they do, they call the guy that did it. Oh, yeah. So it was hard for me to play that old music to new songs. Yeah. I could play new music to new songs, but playing, trying to recreate what I did in the past, very difficult for me to do. And I said, you know, the hardest thing I've ever had to do is steal for myself <laughs> or borrow for myself. I'm moving on to the next thing. So that's why they're all a little different. Yeah. <laughs> They may have the same generation starting out. This may be the same energy starting out, but it's different notes, different melodies, different music. Yeah. But it's just different way it's And that's the way I've together. always been. Yeah. 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 I mean, it'd be easy enough to write another End of My Nine Hour or Knock on Wood or one of those songs, but it's very difficult to be different and write one like it. Yeah. It's almost impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so let somebody else do that. They're better at it than I am, so... <laughs> I, I, Let him go. I don't know about that. But yeah. And they say, are you upset that so-and-so, this sounds like such and such? I said, no, it's a compliment as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. If that yeah. song inspired them to write the song they wrote, more power to them. Have fun with it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they say imitation is, uh -huh. the, is the, the best form of flattery, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. A big form of flattery. Yeah. I was um, I was talking with Adam, who's the producer of the podcast, and he was, he was saying to me that um, – he, he, uh, he, when we knew we were doing the podcast, he went and listened to a, a whole bunch of your stuff again, to, you know, to get an idea about it. And he said to me, he said, uh, he said I can hear a lot of your playing 
from that you've got from Steve Cropper, a lot of riffs and things like that. Do you, you must hear that quite often when you when you listen to records. You must think, "Hello, that's what that's one of my riffs uh, playing there." That's 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 kind of well, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I've had to get pretty close close enough to for people to say, "Hey, Cropper, I know that you playing." Oh wow! No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody hits a lick or two that sounds like it, and then goes to something else, I understand that. When somebody is actually copying something or whatever, it's you know it's one thing, yeah. it's another thing. More power to them. Like you say, the best form of flattery you can get is somebody who wants to copy you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I you know, I I do do it. I I I'm on stage sometimes and I'm playing a solo and I will put in a Steve Cropper lick in in the solo because it it's great. <laughs> it fits. I hope they. I hope all the girls do flips when you do that. That's when all the underwear is thrown at, at the stage, you know, and it's like <laughs> yeah. it's. Because all the screaming stuff. The pile of room keys has got yeah. to go, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a lot of those riffs are so just—they're just there at your fingertips. They just come, and it's great, and they fit in. You know. Well, uh, I look at it one way: selling energy. Yeah. If you're not feeling it, why play it? Yeah. It's not working. So I think they said, "Why are some of those records on stack such big hits?" I said, "Because we were selling energy. We we're selling instrumentals with words." <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what it was. It was all about the energy. Yeah. <laughs> then you can't erase energy. You can not play it. That would get rid of the energy. <laughs> but you can't erase it. Talking about the energy, you're absolutely right. When you listen to those songs, you, you can you can hear the you can almost hear the band sweating, kind of like as they're playing. It's just got that atmosphere <laughs> to it. I mean, it would. I, it was that a great thing about being a house band in a studio? You know, just always kind of being on it and you know always working together. Absolutely. You must miss. We that. had more fun than you can have. Yeah. You could pay guys to have that much fun, not, not legally, right? <laughs> and we were doing it for fun, but it was a lot of fun. And getting paid for it too. I said, if you do good at what you do, the money will come one day. Don't worry about it. You'll yeah. get it. You get paid for it. Today they want the money right now. They want it before they even play. That's kind of silly, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, that they want it right then. Pay me right now. And I pull them aside and say. What if you change your mind? What are you talking about? I said, what if you get found in love and get married and have a kid? Then you have nothing to leave them. Well, that's not going to happen. How do you know it's not going to happen? <laughs> so they don't want to listen to an old man about anything. Yeah. But one of these days, it'll strike them, and then they'll be left without and nothing to do. So there you go, kids. In the words of Elvin Bishop, save it for a rainy day. Yeah. You may need it. My dad always taught me that. Don't put all your eggs in one basket and save a little for a rainy day. So here's what I did when I got a royalty check. I would buy something that I really did want badly and couldn't afford. So I would buy it, and the rest of the money would either be invested or put away somewhere. That's the way I treated a royalty check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what what's on the what's on the shopping list these days? things that you really badly want. <laughs> staying alive, staying alive. <laughs> so I had somebody in an interview one day, you hadn't done this, but somebody said, well, you've been around the world. What's on your bucket list? I said, only one thing on my bucket list. I said, yeah, what's that? I said, don't kick the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Yeah. <laughs> you've been playing music kind of like oh, the best part of 60 years now. How do you keep, how do you keep the excitement there and the, and the, the, the new songs coming and the energy? I mean, how do you keep on top of that? Well, like I said, if you're not having fun with it, it ain't fun. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll show up. If you're not having fun, it'll show up, and people won't like it. Yeah. If you're having fun, they want part of it. They want some more of that. Give me some more of that. Give me some of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're damn right. Take all you want. And if I knew what what made 
things work or made things famous, I'd bottle it and give it to everybody. But I, I don't know, so I, I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I was, one of the things, you know, I haven't, haven't written so many <laughs> classic songs. You know, classics. When I say classic songs, I've been. I didn't write any. That was a part of the song. <laughs> well, yeah, helped, helped to write. You were there. You know, you shaped it. You know, if you weren't there, <laughs> those songs wouldn't have been the same. They say, where do you get your ideas from? I said, well, ideas fall out of the ceiling. You just got to be there to catch them when they fall. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have heard that before. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it, there's no there's no formula for songwriting, right? There's no mathematical formula you can write down and go, you know, this is going to be a hit. No, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking and saying that, you know, you you were saying you didn't write the songs on your own. You, you, worked, you know, those classic songs you worked, obviously, with Otis Redding and all those kind of, you put the songs together. Do you, are you doing writing songs with people now these days or are you are you, are you kind of like oh, i think i've got this now every now and then if there's a project and and recently i have written some with people and i don't have a project it lists it's them and i wrote uh three songs about two weeks ago and two songs last week that's pretty good job. very very talented people co-wrote yeah i always co-write yeah. Even if I'm at home and come up with an idea, I will take that idea and share it with somebody. I never finished it at the time. I'm my own worst critic. <laughs> I don't like what I do. I'm always critiquing what I do. So it's better just leave it alone and let somebody else critique it. If they don't like it, they'll tell me they don't like it. Yeah. If they love it, they'll say, do that again. That's great. Do that again. How'd you do that? Okay, I'll show them. <laughs> has, has there any, ever been any songs that you've kind of started like that? You thought, yeah, you know, well, this has got this has got." startings of something i'm going to take it and give it to someone and then they've ruined it and you thought oh man i wish i hadn't i wish i just kept it for myself now no i never wish no. that i hadn't given it away no i never think that ever so if they take an idea that i've given them and do something with it that's great yeah. that was the whole purpose of it coming to you in the first place i think you've been very lucky that's all i can say <laughs> i think you know i have been very lucky no one's ruined very, your very songs and just, you know god <laughs> yeah i didn't do any of that somebody else did it <laughs> you're very humble you know that very very humble and uh you know well maybe maybe not because i i work with a lot of people that don't have a clue how to get it played or get it to the right person yeah. don't ask me why i know i just have an instinct for it and i know how to get it out there so there you go yeah the one that i've got out right now the album i had out went number one yeah. it's the first album i've ever had that is a believe it or not pure from top to bottom dance record right yeah and i never did promote it i never called anybody and said play this i never promoted it. i never said this is great it just did it on its own oh. so there you go energy sales this is uh <laughs> fire it up the uh your, your latest album coming out in january 2021 is that right yeah right yeah it's a great it's a great album. definitely a pandemic album yeah. definitely a pandemic <laughs> album <laughs> So I've had to educate a few people. They think fire it up means fire up the grill. It's about a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did see a quote earlier. I was re reading through some stuff, and I saw that you said that um, you kind of thought of this as, you, as, as the first solo album you've done since 1969. It's the first one I released that was actually a dance album. Yeah, okay, right. Because the others were all about singing and songs and music and all that sort yeah. of stuff. This one was strictly about dance. It's got a groove. And yeah. it turned out that way. Yeah. And uh, it's probably the first album I produced or put out that I didn't sing on. Somebody else was singing. Yeah. Roger Riel was singing yeah. on it. Do you like to do a bit of singing? Uh, maybe. I don't know. 
I prefer for my playing to play behind somebody that's inspiring me yeah. to play. That I prefer. It's hard for me to play behind myself. And then I have to get into the song and, and, and play that, approach it that way. Because my singing to me would turn me off. <laughs> I'm the world's worst. I'm telling you. I would critique myself. They'd have to leave me off the track. No, Steve, I've heard you say... I've, I've had engineers say, Cropper, would you just stop <laughs> putting yourself down? That sounds great. I've said, no, it yeah. doesn't. I know I can do better than that. <laughs> I, I've heard you sing, and I, I thought it was great, man. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I it is what it is. is. <laughs> I think it's terrible. <laughs> I don't have a good sounding voice, I don't think. I think we all think that. It's, it's very weird hearing your own voice, isn't it? It's kind of like being in your own brain. It is a little weird, yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm used to hearing it back a lot, so I'm used to what it sounds like. What I don't like is the way it's approached. <laughs> that didn't always work out for me. <laughs> so in the last album with Roger, I told uh, John Tithen, my co-producer, I said, uh, if we're going to finish these tracks up, you're going to need a singer. He says, I got one. I said, then you need to play me something he's done. I never heard of this guy. Don't know why our paths never crossed, other than the fact that he was in rock and roll and I was in R&B. Yeah. And I recognized he was a great singer. I said, where's this guy been all my life? What possessed me to say that? Because he was good. That's why. <laughs> Talk about singers. And, you know, you've worked, worked with some of the best singers in the world. Uh, uh. <laughs> have you ever had a favorite? Is there a favorite you could possibly, you know? Oh. Not a real favorite, but uh, all the ones you've heard of are great. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was great. The thing that impressed me the other night that was still alive and still around is Eddie Floyd. Eddie Floyd is yeah. 84 years old, sounds like a teenager. I don't know how Felix Cavalieri is as old as he is. He still sounds like a teenager to me. He's, he comes on stage with the energy, Eddie does with the energy, working like he did when he was 19, 20 years old. Yeah, how, and he's 60, he's 84 years old. How do they do that? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I told... Uh, our other guitar player, John Tropea, we come off the stage you know, down in Australia. I said, John, I can't jump as high as I used to. The next year we played it, I said, John, I can't jump anymore. <laughs> he said, I can't either. I can't jump at all anymore. Yeah. So there you go. Again, talking about singers and stuff like that, you know, you've worked with some of the best for sure. Um, we, we, we all know who they are, so that's, that's fine. What about people who are around today? Is there anyone you, you, you're sort of watching and thinking, Wow, I love that singer. I'd love to work with that singer. No, but when I find him, I'm going to capture him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll grab him by the neck until he says, okay, I'll sing for you. <laughs> I, I wish I could find that person. I don't know. I'm sure that person's around somewhere. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. Uh, what I can say to your audience, when you ask me who my favorite singers, I can tell you two guys. One was Otis Redding, the other was Rod Stewart, sang a song like it was the last song they were ever going to sing. And the funny thing about uh, Rod is that he knew, and he knew I knew, that he was going to go home and change the lyrics on that song. But he sang it for the band like it was the last thing he was ever going to hey. do. And that inspired the band to play a little yeah. better. Otis did the same thing. The, thing. the thing about Otis was he sang a song that was finished. And if it wasn't finished, that's it. I remember can't, a song like Can't Turn You Loose, which became a very, very big song, yeah. was unfinished. We cut that in 10 minutes. He said he was headed to his bus. His band was waiting on the bus outside to go to a gig. He said, I got one more idea. 
when you listen to it, the lyrics are over and over, and they don't make any sense. I lost everything I had. I lost someone just like you. What does that mean? Yeah. If he put the word did on it, I lost someone just like you did, that would make sense in the English language. But I lost someone just like you. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Do songs have to make sense? I don't know. I think it's just, you know. Uh, I don't know. Otis was selling energy and it worked. Yeah. Yeah, I think. But the thing about Otis is you could mix him with Sam Cooke and Little Richard. And he had best of both worlds. He could croon like Sam Cooke. He could get on stage and perform and scream and do all that rock and roll stuff yeah. just like little Richard could. Yeah. So he had the best of both worlds. Right <laughs> I have this kind of really weird question that I like to ask people and it's, um, it's a bit of an odd one. So bear with me for, for a moment, but, uh, I want you to imagine if you can, that, uh, a long way in the future, a long way in the future, many, many years from now, and uh, it's 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 let's hope at least fifty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your, your time is nearly up, you know. And uh, so you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I'll only be one hundred and forty fifty years yeah. ago. <laughs> but they, the technology's moved on, and they've they've said to you, "Look, we can we can rebuild you. We can make you like the six million dollar guitarist." You know, like um, <laughs> uh, what I want to know is they've got all these amazing robot body parts that they can give you. What what would you like to upgrade on body parts? You can have anything you want upgraded. What would what would you do? The whole scheme of things. I wish I had the energy to do it better. I I can only do now what I can do. But if I was still young, I would do it as good as I could and go for that. Yeah, it's another question from the, from the future again. I like future questions. And uh, it's this one involves not not the end of you specifically, but the end of the world. The whole world is about to end, and uh, there's a big there's a big meteorite heading for us or something like that. And the uh, the president of the world there's a, there's a world president now. He calls you up and says, Steve, we need to have the biggest party the world has ever seen. We're going to go out in a great big party. We're going to have this. Huge celebration of, of everything we've done. We want you to put a band together. And what I want to know is who are you going to have in the band and what song are you going to play? I would need time to think about that. But I wouldn't do it. I'd call somebody else to the do that. The asteroid's coming now. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> His brain is working, folks. Yeah. I would call somebody like Eric Clapton. To put a band together and i will go back to a story that about eric when donald duck dumb was with eric clapton for a while and he got home and he called me he always called me he said i'm back home now he said i got some good news i got some bad news i said well give me the good news he said eric clapton cut your song knock on wood he said the thing that eric said he wanted everybody to play exactly what was on the original record he said, I got home and listened to it. He said, I was the only one that wasn't playing like the record. <laughs> Bless his heart. Was that on purpose? He was still good. <laughs> I don't know. He just played with feel. He was playing yeah. to what he was listening yeah. to. You know? Yeah. Which caused him to play something a little different than what he had on the original record. Right, yeah. Different day, different feeling, right? I guess it's, uh, yeah. Uh, who knows what it is, but, but that's a good example of... Uh, <laughs> what we used to do against what we do now. And my God, that was so many years ago when, when Eric clipped that song. But 
think about when he cut it and when Eddie Floyd cut it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a long distance between those two records. It is indeed. <laughs> and I heard something before I came down to do your interview. And, I, and I'm going to give them a plug. Carlos Santana and Steve Winwood put out Watershed Appeal. Yeah. Have you heard I it? I have not, but it's pretty darn I good. I imagine it would be, yeah. Well, yeah. It's very I good. Look it up. And Winwood sounds like he did. You know, when he did uh, Give Me Some Lovin', he was 15 years old. Yeah, and I remember voice. Booker coming backstage one time. He says, Steve, you got to stop telling a story about Green Onions. I said, what's that? He said, I was 16 when we recorded that, not 15. <laughs> I said, okay, Booker, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Bless his heart. I think the thing is about your playing, Steve, is it's, it's so many people have heard it, and they might not even know it's you. But they've heard it, and, they, and, they're, and they're familiar with it. And I think that's, you know, just a great thing that so many people could hear it. And they probably love those songs, and they don't realize what's gone into it. But somewhere inside, they know it's it's the, the energy and, the you know, the talent that was, went into making that record in the first place. And I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a fantastic thing. Well, you know, I know note-wise I play very simple, very easy to copy. Most people can't don't know that I get that sound a certain way and do do my thing with it. And I've had guys come up and said, man, I've been playing that song for years. I didn't know that was where you played it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now you know. I just, you know, I couldn't do this without asking you a little bit about the Blues Brothers. I think um, uh, for a lot of people, that's been a point of entry into blues music. And, uh, you know, they, they were introduced to a lot of those songs. Well, by that. I mean, for me, I was about, I, don't know, I was about 10 years old when that movie came out. I thought it was fantastic. Then I went and bought the Blues Brothers albums, you know, and thought, oh, well, you know, what's that? Who's, who's this guy? You know, oh, my God, he's the guy who did Dock of the Bay. You know, this is, like, fantastic. So um, any, anything you want to just say about the, the, the Blues Brothers period and, and, and all that? Because I think a lot of people are interested <laughs> well, in Well, Duck and I got a lot of flack about playing they, they said, what are these two guys, musicians, doing playing with these crazy comedians? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> what, they, what they didn't know was that Dan Aykroyd really is a harmonica player, yep. a great one. And uh, John Belushi, way before he became a comedian, played drums in front of the band singing up in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't know that. They found out about it later. Yeah. So he really could sing. He could sing, he could remember the lyrics and the melodies of songs, but when he said, I suggest you go out and buy as many blues albums as you can, that told me about him. I'd already been to his brownstone and saw a collection of blues records that I had never seen before. Yeah. I went, oh, my God. He had hundreds and hundreds of blues records. Yeah. <laughs> I bet I don't, unless we did, but we didn't do blues at Stax. They called it blues. We did R&B, dance yeah. music. We took... Like a, people like Albert King, we made it made some of those songs danceable. Yeah, <laughs> he a lot of them he'd been doing all his life on stage, but we made them danceable. Like Al Jackson did. Yeah, with the with the energy, <laughs> right? Just putting the energy in there, and yeah, yeah. And and then later in life came along songs like "Born Under Bad Sign" that William Bell wrote with Booker yeah. T. Da ba da 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 da. The only reason it's in the key of C sharp is to get that low E ba da da bow ding. <laughs> It was a sound, you know. The good news was that Albert could play and sing in that key. It didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> That's the important thing, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I just want to, again, just very quickly get this quick question in. Um, out of all the songs that you've worked on, performed on, 
Um, I don't know whether this is uh, it's probably a very hard question to ask. Maybe I should ask you which of your children you love the most, but I'm going to ask you which of your songs you love the most. <laughs> I don't. I don't favor show favoritism. I don't do it with my kids either. I treat them all the same. They know I love them more than anything. And I think my wife knows I love her more than anything. Or I wouldn't be married to her. We just celebrated 33 years. Congratulations. I must like her quite a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well done. What, um, what yeah. song do you think you'll be remembered for the most? I have no idea. <laughs> what? One of the top 20. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I can tell you this for your fans. When uh, Rolling Stone come out with the best 100 songs of all times, I had three in there. They just came out with a new version, 500 of the best songs of all time. 500. I've got two in that one. Fantastic. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And and like I say, I, I suspect that the, uh, the anyone in the world is into music has, has you know heard them and, and loves them. And, and you know, I, I'm an absolute well, fan of of your work. You know, charts are charts. <laughs> Who does this? I have no idea. Probably people that are not in the business. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. People who worry about the money, right? <laughs> because that first list of guitar players, they left people like like, Z, like Billy Gibbons. Yeah. They left him off of their list. Give me a break. So when I confronted people with that, people like him and some other guys, Brian Setzer, they left him off and had me up there next to Bo Dilly, which was a cool deal. We were 36 and 37. That ain't bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know where I am now. I don't care, but pretty good. But I said, what am I doing on a list? And they left these guys that can play rings around me off the list. Crazy. Steve, it's been an absolute honor talking to you. It really has. I mean, My pleasure. I could go on for, 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 for weeks and weeks with this, to be honest. It's, uh, you know. We could just go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> but we're probably not going to because the airways are going to cut us off, aren't Absolutely. they? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I hope that for a very, very long time you keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, writing the songs, playing guitar, putting the songs out there, you know, having, having fun. fun. Yeah, it like fun. you say. You know, Doug Dunn said it all. He would sit down on a session. He said, boys, we're not going to make work out of this, are we? <laughs> and he meant it. <laughs> yeah. If it isn't going to be fun, I'm out of here. Yeah, there's <laughs> I'm a not going to sit here and make work out of it. <laughs> Very wise, man. Yeah. Let's have fun and let's don't even fire up the tape. Yeah. <laughs> don't turn the machine on if we're not going to have fun. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yeah. Whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. We love it. And uh, I hope hope to see you out on the road sometime soon. I do too. Please come back and say hello if I do show up where you're I at. I will. I will indeed. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Blues Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And also make sure you leave us a review and a rating as this helps other people find the Blues Podcast. I'll catch you next time. Bye.